All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. It's almost uh, what the fuck miss. You know what I find over the years is that I'm, I'm not a big gift giver. And eventually that catches up with you is that if you're not a big gift giver, uh, you will not be receiving many gifts. And I, I enjoy a gift, but I think I've lost my, uh, my appreciation for them because it's not so much that I have everything I want, but generally through barter and through people wanting me to, to hear or read or, 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 or talk about things here on the show, I get sent a lot of unsolicited, I guess we could call them gifts, but sometimes they're not gifts. Sometimes they're just things that eat up space or things that I eat that I don't enjoy or things why well, I enjoy them initially, but then I'm like, hey, it's not that great, but sometimes they're all right. Sometimes they're, they're shirts that I can't wear there. But I'll tell you one thing, if it comes from a publisher, it comes from a record store, a lot of times what I do is I bring a lot of those books to the library. And uh, let them have them for the people who come sit in the library. I've been thinking about going to the library lately. Because uh, in, up in my new neighborhood, up where I'm going to be uh, hanging out, up where the new house is, there's a library not too far away. And I was driving by it. And I saw it. I saw the uh, in the windows, just the stacks of books and the tables there. And there wasn't anyone in there. And I thought, I should be the guy that sits there at the library all day one day. And uh, so... Uh, not not huge short-term goals to be the guy at the library who probably brings his own snack. The guy at the library brings his own sandwich that smells up the whole library. How about those people on airplanes? Huh? No tuna fish. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I know you think you're cutting corners because you, you know, you, you, you brought it from home. You're not going to spend money on the plane. Not going to buy it before you get the, get on the plane. You're going to bring your own stinky tuna salad. Right into the plane that will it'll stink up the entire fucking plane. Can you believe that we smoked on planes? I can't. I still can't believe that. I got an email here. I'd like to read. I got some other stuff that. But look, um, I do want you to have a good holiday and be safe. You know, Christmas is not my bag, but I like how everything quiets down. Like this, probably the last day in L.A. where there'll be that that'll be populated because a lot of people from around here live other places and they all split. It's just nice and quiet. And you know what you can do that you can never do here that's amazing uh, over the holiday here in L.A. is you can actually drive on the highways and and drive. It's very exciting. I can't wait till this weekend. I'm probably going to spend a lot of time in the car just going like, holy shit, look, we're moving. We're, this is what these roads were made for, baby. Just driving. God damn it. Yes, I'm sorry if you're going to be destroyed by this new tax plan. And I guess I'm speaking to most of us. I won't be destroyed, but uh, it ain't good. Not in this state. But I imagine this is going to really hurt a lot of people over time. It might even destroy the country even further than it's already being destroyed. Exciting time. Merry Christmas. Did I mention it? Did I mention the holidays are here? Neil Preston is on the show. Neil Preston is uh, one of the great rock photographers uh, just seminal is that the, the word that i want seminal images seminal images talk about that in a minute i do want to say i i bought a suit today that's i, I neglected to keep you to totally up to speed because if everything goes well and uh things keep moving in the direction that they are whereas i'm alive 
and these events are still taking place and I'm still part of them. I will be going to the Critics Choice Awards and the SAG Awards, Screen Actors Guilds Awards, because I'm nominated for them and I do not have a suit. I'll be honest with you. I don't wear suits ever. And when I do, it's usually this Western suit that I got uh, on Marin that uh, it's just got it's a Western cut black suit. It's, a, it's kind of a cheapo suit, but it's a high-end Western suit. But that's the only black suit I have. And all the other suits I have, I'll be honest with you, I took from the wardrobe of the remake of Nevermind the Buzzcocks back in 19... Fuck. 99, maybe? 2000? 17, 18 years ago? Those are the suits I'm working with. So I went out and bought a grown-up suit. Spent some money on it. I don't have any kids. I don't have a wife. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I'm not in debt. What am I going to do? Just die with my money? What am I going to do with it? Give it to my mom? Give it to the cats? Leave it to a cat charity? Nah, I probably should probably leave something in there for the ACLU. That's for sure. <laughs> Someone's got to fucking try to fix this mess. But uh, the point being, I went to Tom Ford in uh, Beverly Hills and I bought myself a black classic black three-piece suit with a white shirt and a black tie and black shoes and i enjoyed wearing it in the store i enjoyed getting it looking at the tailor make the little wax marks on it and i look good in that fucker i look good in that mirror i look good in that suit it was worth the bread i don't give a fuck anymore i'm gonna i'm gonna wear that suit to those two shows and maybe never wear it again but but so what? You only live once. I don't know how long it's going to last anymore. I don't know how much time I have left. If you're familiar with my special, that would uh, be another callback. Uh, I'm going to read an email that I'm going to bring on Neil Preston. Talk about him for a minute. Heartfelt. A heartfelt, grateful thank you. Hi, Mark. I don't know if you'll ever read this, but you have become the most unlikely hero of my life. In my 20s, which I've come to realize were a lot like yours, only with inferior narcotic quality and without Bill Hicks, I fucking hated you, literally. If we met on the street then, I'm pretty sure one of us would have had to punch the other's mean, smirking face just out of general principle. In my younger days, I always thought of you as a pose searching for an elusive cause that would never arrive. Now I am 45 and I've just watched your last four stand-up specials and I was truly amazed at what you've become. You are finally the cool older teacher you idolized when you were younger. You have become a truly timelessly cool, great fucking comic. Because when I listen to you, I admire both your specific kind of unvarnished honesty and even more the subtle command of craft and storytelling that makes you the only person who can do that set. Anyway, it should be obvious that clearly what I hated in you in my 20s was what I secretly hated in myself, just projected onto a human-shaped screen. I was the snarling, contemptuous, cred-obsessed, punk indie kid who was defined never by what he loved, only by what he hated. I'm trying to get better as I get older, just like you, and as fucked up as you admit to being, you have a earned stillness, maybe not inner peace, but I admire the hell out of you for finding whatever that is, and despite this not being a great time of life for me your specials gave me real joy and hope for the future sorry for the long rambling nonsense sincere thanks blue isn't that interesting an earned stillness maybe not inner peace i have a earned stillness i like that man i like that blue i appreciate that 
I never thought of stillness versus inner peace. Stillness. I can do that. I, I think it's because my brain is rotting, though, and I there's there's some gaps. You know, like a lot of the stuff that I used to sort of like really fester about. A lot of my memory is kind of like, it's not foggy. It's just, uh, it's not as present as it used to be. I got to dig a bit. There's a stillness in that until I start digging, until I start digging. And if I'm not digging for memories, I'm digging for things to be unstill about. But I appreciate that input, man. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I, you know, I, I don't know if I would have hit you. I've never hit anybody in my life. So I don't think that would have happened. Probably just the look, though. Just the look. Um, Neil Preston. This is an interesting guest because, you know, I, it came to me through um, Cameron Crowe's people. It, Neil Preston has a book out called Exhilarated and Exhausted. It's available wherever you get books. It's a big, beautiful book. You can check out his work at PrestonPictures.com. But he did all, like, so many great rock photographs. And how important were photographs, man? I mean, how important were they, like, you know, especially before the internet when you were younger, if you're my age, those, those, those fucking, those pictures, man, those pictures, there are certain pictures. He took the picture of Robert Plant with the, holding the dove. He took that picture. I talked to him about it. It's just that pictures meant so much. They hung on our walls. We looked at them. Pictures of our heroes. They were they were comforting. They were how we saw them. There were moments that humanized them and elevated them at the same time. There's a lot of those of all kinds of people. Heroic people. Important people. Or maybe just fucking just fucking rebels. Right? But sometimes that's the pick you want. That that one that just characterizes everything that you look up to in that person, even if it's fucked up. Anyways, I got an opportunity to talk to Neil. I thought he would have some good stories, and he did. And uh, this is me talking to uh, Neil Preston. The reality is is that you've done all these iconic photos, and they're stunning, and uh, they're memorable. But, but I would say 80%, maybe, of the people in there Seventy percent are probably gone. I haven't done the count, but uh, you want more cans? Uh, yeah, sure. Like I love Petty and I love Bowie, and, and you know, and and you know, on some level, you realize, well, this generation is of that age. Uh, people live longer, but people like yourself, you, what are you in your sixties? I'm sixty-five. So you're yeah. a, a little younger than the guys you were shooting a lot of times a, a, of a that lot of generation. Times, a lot of times, on the other hand, Tom Petty was. One, one year, year older, older than me. Yeah. But you know, they lived hard. They they made the choice they made, and you're not horrendously surprised when a when a rock star dies in his sixties. Uh right. you're, you're sometimes you're surprised if they made it that far. <laughs> but still when it happens, you know, the, even if you didn't listen to their last four records, the idea that they were here meant something. Absolutely. And um and each one of those uh each one of those artists that I've uh, that uh, who, who have passed away that I've worked with each one of those deaths yeah takes a little bit of my soul with yeah. it and um, some I knew better than others yeah uh, you, you know the, how well did you know Tom uh, I mean I knew Tom we didn't hang out and uh, you know play poker or anything but uh, I shot him many times over the years I did all the Wilburys pictures uh. and 
and uh, went to the Super Bowl with Tom when he when he did the Super Bowl and yeah. had shot him many times uh, during his career. And it's just, you know, it's gut wrenching. It's absolutely gut wrenching when you get news like this. the The news about uh, Glenn Fry really just took us for a loop. Um, oh yeah, that, yeah. Was, uh, that was. I guess they're all sort of a surprise. Yeah, it's like a, it's a surprise. But you're not shocked, but you're surprised. Um, you, I mean, it's going to happen sooner or later. Greg Allman, oh. um, that was really tough because he was a guy who was very important to us early on in my career and Cameron's career, and and um, was a god. Uh, Greg Allman was a god to us. I saw him pass me by. I was at the Bowery Hotel. It must have been, you know, not even six months before he died. I felt a presence walk behind me, and I just turned around, and it was Greg, and he he, he looked like a ghost, and you know, and he, I didn't realize how how small he was. Well, <laughs> he, he well, here's the thing: he never used to be that small. When we met Greg in '73, yeah, Greg was about six. He had to be six one. Really? Six, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, long and lean, the yeah. long blonde hair, yeah. You sure and he wasn't just wearing platforms? I'm telling you, he was, well, he was, but he was he was really tall yeah. and 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 lean, you know. Yeah. And when we finally, uh, 43 years later, Cameron and Greg and I were in the same room. We went down to Del Mar to see him play, and Greg had shrunk in up, Florida. Up, no, at Del, Del Mar oh. at the racetrack. Oh, okay, by San Diego. Yeah, and we walked into Greg's. Um, dressing room and the three of us had not been in the same room together in 43 years yeah and he had he was about six inches shorter really yeah it was really insane and he he was he was much shorter than cameron and myself and well we, cameron was like 15 when you met him the first time right yeah but i'm yeah but i was 20 yeah and and but greg was visibly no kid had, had aged you know 80 years and 40 years and uh we took a picture with him, and and Greg insisted that I be on one side and Cameron be on the other side, so that he could rest his arms on each of our shoulders, as if to pull himself prop, up. Prop himself up. And what I've just found out recently is Greg knew, at that point, and a couple of years before that he was dying, because uh, of the liver. Yeah, he had he had found out uh, five almost five years before he passed away. Yeah. And uh, it, it's very it's a very interesting story. Um, I was in London, uh, I don't know, two months ago, yeah. three months ago, and I got an email from someone at Gibson Guitars saying that uh, one of Greg's daughters was trying to get a hold of me. That it was important, something to do with the posthumous album that was going to be coming out um, late later this year, and. Um, she ended up uh, writing me a note. Um, I spoke to her when I got back to L.A., and it turned out that um, uh, Greg had uh, recorded a, an album at Muscle Shoals yeah. Studios, uh, which was, and he knew he was going to be dying. He recorded this record, and the title of the record is Southern Blood. And his daughter, uh, Layla Allman, uh, contacted me saying that uh, the... the that Greg had become uh, enamored of this painter in New York named, I believe, Vincent Castiglia, uh -huh. whose whose kind of thing was to use human blood in the paint as yeah. part of the pigment. 
and Greg uh, fell in love with this guy's paintings. He bought a piece and, and then called the guy and said, I want you to paint my album cover uh, in my own blood. And and uh, so he sent Greg, he sent uh, Vincent a couple of vials of his blood and the, and the painter put him in the fridge and uh, they were supposed to set up a photo shoot as a ref- to do a reference photo so the guy could paint from it and... Greg was too sick to do that photo shoot and he passed away. So Layla called me saying the entire family has decided that the one picture that we want uh, him to use, it's unanimous, is yeah. your photo of Greg. Which one, from the 70s? From Yeah, from... The se- portrait? 73, yeah. yeah, that very angelic-looking yeah. portrait. And I said, I called her back and I said, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm honored. I don't want to send, you know, whatever you need. And... Yeah. And the guy did the painting, and they unveiled it uh, about three, four weeks ago at the Grammy Museum. And it's, you know, it's painted in blood. And, you know, when blood dries, you get that kind of rust color. It's not bright red. Whoa, heavy, huh? It, it really heavy. And, and I was, um, you know, I was iffy about how it would look. But when I saw it in person, the the painter caught the gleam in Greg's eye. Oh, and, yeah. And, and it's, I mean, the the surreal aspect of shooting a picture of Greg Allman 43 years ago and then having it be included in his album that has just come out, you know, and he recorded Muscle Shoals and, and you, know, you know, there's all those ghosts in the machines. Don was, uh, produced the record. And there's some really great, there's one track, I can't remember the name, but it's really swampy and bluesy, kind of like Midnight Rider, but just swampy was it with almond guys no it was with his um with his touring band okay actually because like you know don did the that last uh, i think he had a lot to do with that last stones record the blues record which was great i haven't listened to a rolling stones record since 1981 well i mean i'm the same as you though but i you know this was the one that they'd been talking about for years an all blues record it could have been their first album you gotta listen you gotta listen to it uh, well, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I'm telling you, man. Okay, I'm telling you. Right, like so, I was just so, saying, like I believe that the last good one they did might have been '81, and I hadn't really given some a girls. Shit. Right, right. I, I liked Emotional Rescue. I was all right, and I liked Tattoo You uh, too. It was okay. There's some good. There's some good ones on there. But the, as far as a whole record goes, right. I agree with you. But this thing, if you're a Stones guy, I mean, you'll be like, oh my god. It's all blues covers. Interesting. The whole thing's blues covers, dude. And did they bring in other musicians? It's yeah, basically man. Keith. Uh, no, it's Keith and Daryl. You know, the, right, the guy's right, been the, with me. Right. Eric Clapton sits in on a few, uh, plays a lead on some. And Mick is all over the harmonica again, like real wow. deal. Like they're covering wow. Howlin' Wolf, Jimmy Reed tunes again. I'm telling you, it could have right. been their first yeah. record. It sounds like their first record. Yeah. yeah. Dude, you got to listen right, to Well, I'll listen to I'm that getting, if you listen to Greg's record. I, I didn't even know about Greg's <laughs> it's record. It's called Southern Blood. Of yeah. course yeah. I'll listen yeah. to Greg's yeah. record. I mean, it's, it's... And you know what? That day that when we saw Greg yeah. two years ago, and he was very frail and obviously not in good health. Yeah. The weird thing was, the second he got on stage and started singing... His voice was there. He was right there, right on it. And after the set was over, I noticed that he didn't want to get off the stage. He kind of wandered around as the crowd filed out of the stands. He's talking to roadies. He's, you know, talking to this person, that one, Mm. look, checking his his, uh, keyboards. He did not want to get off the stage. 
Because that's where he's eternal. That's exactly, and that's <laughs> that that's home. Yeah, it's home to him. And and I noticed that, and it turned out I, I was I was correct. Were you shooting that? Yep, you shot that that. Yeah, I shot. In fact, I I shot a picture of Greg going down. Finally, when he went off the stage, going down the stairs, and I, so you see his back, and he's holding on to the rail. And Where's that like, picture? Pictures uh, in the follow-up. <laughs> you know, we couldn't put every picture in the book, so uh, it's. But I thought this could be the last time. Greg ever walks off a stage. It's, it's funny now you talk about it and thinking about the book. None, you know, really none of the pictures in the book, it, like, and I just, I just put it down. Mm-hmm. Were were are, are sad pictures or documents of of the end of people. They're all very vital. Do you, you you know what I mean? Like all of them. You, you know, maybe even the yeah. I, almost every picture in the book are these guys, whether they're they're fucked up or they're whatever they are, they're yeah. not dying. Uh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I guess not visibly. I mean, John Lee Hooker, obviously, that he's still was still alive, that was isn't sh- he? Oh no, he's dead. Oh no. no. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, right, but he always he looked like that for twenty years. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> you know? I mean, boy, if 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 the, the lines on that face could talk. Uh, but no, I think it's a good thing. But like when you talk about this, I never this, really realized that the picture when you talk about the picture of Greg, it's sort of I'd like to see that be like even even the picture of Leonard Cohen, you know, which is twenty years ago, and it's in ninety five, two thousand five, two thousand, you know, twenty years before he died. He's an older man, and he's in that uh, the 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 meditation position. Yeah, well, he, it's he, a beautiful he, picture. I know he's a he was a monk. Yeah. yeah, he was a monk. Yeah, he was a monk, and he was. Uh, we had to go up uh, Mount Baldy where there's a. What do you call it? Monastery? Yeah. Monkastery. Yeah. <laughs> and um and he he was literally living the life of a monk where you don't really speak and you you live in a very Spartan uh manner. It's except beautiful. that except that every once in a while he would go down the hill and play a couple of gigs. Oh, so, really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. the gigging monk. Yeah. Well, that's it's a it's it's a sweet picture uh, of him, you know. It really is. But like, you know, I looked through the book and I was I was going to tell you like about the painting. You get a call from the Almond estate, the Almond family, the Almond daughter to, yeah, yeah. to, to contribute to your photographs so they could be painted. I would imagine that there, there have been literally hundreds of thousands of high school pa- pieces, drawings and paintings uh, and silk screens done from your photographs. Oh, more than hundreds of thousands, <laughs> and uh, you know that's we'll, we'll we'll throw that question over to my lawyer. What, um, but, uh, yeah, but not to sell, no, but no, just no, to, no. You know, in well, the middle yeah. of class when they should be studying, they're drawing kiss. Absolutely, in and the th- snow, and they all end up finding their way backstage and giving those paintings to someone in the band. Oh yeah, they, from it, your photographs. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Let uh, me ask you, what uh, do you, especially someone like uh, Jimmy Page or, right. or Stevie Nicks? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, those those photos you did as Stevie Nicks was that the only shoot you did with her? Oh God, no! No, I mean in the, the the one on the top of the uh, the rooftop, not outside of Fleetwood Mac. No, I did, I've done uh, many many shoots with her. That was the first kind of one on one shoot that we did. I mean, I had started doing some performance photos of Fleetwood Mac uh, around the time just before the Rumors tour, but uh, when Stevie uh, did her first solo record called Belladonna. Uh, I was assigned by a magazine who knew that that I had a some sort of relationship with Fleetwood Mac, and they sent me to her house to do uh, a solo shoot with her. 
And that was the beginning of what's been a very long friendship. And we've done lots of photo shoots. And, you know, I'd, 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 to be honest, I'd have to say she's the closest thing I've ever had to amuse oh, yeah? in my life. And, and I've, you know, I, 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 you read the, the last page in the book where I thank people. And there's three people, uh, three artists that I set aside to thank specifically. And those three people are Brian May. Stevie Nicks and Pete Townsend for different reasons. And Stevie is one of the most creative people I have ever met in my life. Yeah. And why Brian? Brian, uh, well, I've worked closely with Queen for years and years and years. And Brian has been a, a, a friend, a, a, a cheerleader for me. He's, uh, you know, he is literally a rocket scientist. I don't know if you, you know I that. know, he's a great guitar player. Yeah, he's got a doctorate in astronomy. Oh, no kidding. And he co-wrote a book about the, the origin of the universe. Huh. Uh, he's also an expert in 3D photography, stereography. Uh-huh. Stereoscopy, well, 3D photography. And, um, and he's also the only rock star that ever came to my mom and dad's house. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and uh, but but he's been a just a big supporter of of mine, and you know I've spent a lot of time with Queen, yeah, before and after Fred passed away, and uh, and Pete Pete because of well Pete's one of my two idols in my life, the other being John Lennon, but Pete's lyrics, Pete's. Uh, you know his tortured brain you yeah. know he's a mensa level intelligence and uh his self-doubt and, and all that stuff it just really speaks to me and interesting it would and reminds me that it's all going to be okay you he's know? one of the self-doubters huh oh big time it's funny I, I had randy newman in here a few weeks ago <laughs> Talked to him for you know a couple yeah, hours. Yeah. I love him. Did you? Did I you? Re- read I did. My piece I read your piece on about, Randy about the, when he couldn't talk. Well, he, what happened that day? Well, I, I, I what get, year was that? Sorry. That was oh god, that had to be the early eighties, uh-huh. late seventies, something like that. And um, I get this assignment to shoot Randy Newman, and I'm really excited. Yeah, he's. I mean, political science. Is yeah, I love still. Him. I mean, it's great. one of the great uh, songs of all time. I just saw him perform it recently. It's <sighs> great. He's great. I, I mean, he, he's fantastic. Yeah. So um, I get sent to to Randy's house and um, knock on the door, and he opens the door. I, and I stick my hand out. Hi, I'm Neil, and he shakes my hand, and he and he he gives. He has a piece of paper in his hand that says, "Can't talk, doctor's orders," with an arrow pointing yeah. to his throat. And I thought he was kidding. Yeah. So you know, so I'm doing this whole shoot where he can't say a word. Yeah. And I'm and I'm I'm doing anything I can. To is it bust necessary? A, you you want you you just felt like you, this. You, well, this is the this is the guy who can say more in one sentence yeah. than than you know yeah. uh, than anyone can say in an entire book. So you're personally disappointed that he can't. Talk. Oh, I'm beyond personally disappointed. Yeah. I mean, I, I want I just want to get inside his brain a little. Yeah. But I'm there to get the pictures. Right. And I, it, I, first I thought he was kidding, and after 15, 20 minutes, I yeah. realized he's not kidding. Yeah. So, but I'm getting a lot of nods and smiles and this, and can you go over here? And yeah, and I'm getting thumbs ups. Finally, after, I don't know, a couple of hours, I I rapped and I said, okay, Randy, it's a wrap. And and he, big smile now, and my assistant's packing up the equipment. And and I've tried everything. I've stood on my head and spit out nickels to try to get him to even laugh. Yeah. Can't do it, but I decide I'm going to try one last time. And I'm walking out the door. And I turn around and I say, 
so you're starting a tour next week? Yeah. And he nods yes. And I say, uh, what city are you starting? And he comes up to me and he whispers in my ear, Detroit. <laughs> that was the only <laughs> word he said in two hours, Detroit. <laughs> yeah, he's a sweet guy. Oh, my God. Do you find it's necessary? Do you feel that you're compelled when you shoot? To, I mean, obviously, because Randy is Randy, you said he wanted to get inside his brain. But do you feel you need to do that generally with these guys? musicians that you shoot uh yes and no it depends on the artist um i mean i i i do my homework going in but uh it's it's more it's more a question of how do i get how am i going to lead the person into the photograph that that i want to shoot because it's a dance yeah, you know, I lead, you follow, and together we tango. And we, you know, but, we, but, we make something. But if you're shooting a concert, it's not you can't you don't have that much control, right? If I'm, uh, well, I have the well, I have a lot of control as to what I decide I want to shoot, right? But I'm at the mercy of the lighting director and this right. and that. But if you let me do what I do, I'm going to get the shot that you want me to get because I know that especially my performance photos, they they don't look like anyone else's photos. Yeah, they just have a different. It's just the way that I frame things and shoot things. I like clean backgrounds and, yeah. and negative space. And yeah, I can see it. I, what do you think is your most iconic photograph? Well, the one that that, that has become well, there's two or three, but the one that if I had to pick one, it would have to be the photograph of Jimmy Page swinging the Jack Daniels. Yeah, because that has become the iconic photo <laughs> representing seventies excess. Yeah. And, you know, to me, it's just a, a dude swigging Jack Daniels. But um, interestingly enough, the Jack Daniels company refused to buy a big print for their wall. and Because uh, that's not how you drink Jack Daniels? Close. Because they, <laughs> they said, you know, because it is arguably the most famous picture of anyone on earth drinking Jack Daniels. But they said, we, we can't. And and my agent said why, and and the guy from Jack Daniels said because in the photo, Jimmy Page is not drinking responsibly. <laughs> He's gonna drink any fucking way he wants. Okay, <laughs> but but that has become, for some reason, and that was just a, a literally a one click and move on to the next thing. The weird thing is, is like Jack Daniels was the rock and roll drink for years because I know Keith drank it, everyone drank it. Mm -hmm. I, when I was in high school, that's what I embarked on was to drink that. And it was difficult to drink because it's terrible tasting. Oh, it's it's god awful. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I forced it, myself to drink it because well, I thought that was the shit to drink. Well, it, there was one point. Uh, I love the label. You gotta love the it, label. It must have been around the time I don't know. I was with Van, out with Van Halen or someone like that, and I decided it would be cool to go through a swigging Jack Daniels period. <laughs> My yeah. gastro gastroenterologist is still giving me shit about that. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that'll rip your guts out. Yeah, man. how'd that go for you? Not very well. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to keep down. Uh, when he's well, I don't. I, I don't drink anymore, and haven't drank in a long time. But that that it, me neither. I mean, that's nasty <laughs> shit. A long it time. is nasty, nasty stuff. So, what are the other two? What are the other two iconic? Oh ones? well, there's Robert Plant holding the, oh, the white the bird. bird, yeah, and uh, and that was that was a, that just happened. That's a happy accident. Yeah, that was a, an outdoor gig at uh, in '73 at Keysar Stadium in San Francisco. Yeah, and it was a daytime gig, which is unusual. Uh, they the band had twelve white doves 
let's be honest, they're probably pigeons. Right. But six in one cage, six in another cage, and one cage was behind Jonesy's amps, and one cage was behind Jimmy's amps. Yeah. And the 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 idea was that at the end of Stairway, yeah, as 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 a metaphor for peace and love in San Francisco, the birds would be released into yeah. the air and into the crowd. And stairway ended, and they roadies opened the cages, and the birds fluttered away, except for one bird that did a slow turn around the crowd and came and then flew right back towards the stage. Robert just happened to stick his hand out, and the bird just happened to land right Come on. on. I swear to God. I mean, it was it, you couldn't plan this. I mean, it's not one of those eagles no, at the course. Super Bowl that, of you know, course. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a pigeon, it's a white pigeon. And, um, and, and that's how uh, that's how it happened. I mean, you know what? I like to say if you have your hands on the bat and your eyes on the ball, sooner or later a pitcher's going to hang a curve and boom. And at that time, I mean, did you were, were there did you have a I guess did they have shutter engines then? I mean, could you, you mean did, motor drives? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh okay, so. Yeah, but but you just you have to you you have to keep your eyes open, you know. And it sounds like from the the the, the, the when you talk about earplugs and stuff that you need to hear that you yeah. between the shutter drive and your just your finger you need to know yeah, the decision. I, I have to I have to be able to hear it. Uh, otherwise there's a weird disconnect. Yeah. I I tried earplugs once at a Motley Crue show and I couldn't uh, I could feel my camera's mm-hmm. fire but I couldn't quite hear the and it was just it was it just threw me off a little bit. It's a missing part of the experience. Yeah. You were uh, disconnected a little. Yeah, it just, it, it's, because it's all, after a while, it's like a, a guitar yeah, you become player. become one it's, with it's it. It's by touch, yeah. you know, it's, and uh, muscle memory, whatever you want to call it. And uh, uh, I did have, there was one day in particular with the Foo Fighters that I probably lost 20% of my hearing. Do you, f- you feel it now? You got, your, your hearing's fucked up? Uh, yeah, uh, if I'm in crowded uh, restaurants, uh, I, you know, I yeah. cannot have a first date in a yeah. crowded restaurant because I turn into George Burns. Like, yeah. Huh? Yeah. What? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Foo Fighters uh, uh, rehearsed in, in a little garage room, not much bigger than this studio, probably just a little bit bigger. And yeah. um, and uh, as they, they walk in there, and as I'm getting ready to walk in, a roadie says... Uh, here you might need these earplugs yeah. and i said no no don't want them roadie says you might really need them and i said no <laughs> yeah. and the roadie says trust me you're gonna need them and uh, and and i rarely do something like this but i said listen you know i've worked with this one and that one yeah. the who and kiss and yeah. that, you know as you wish closes the door band starts to play within 15 seconds i have a migraine yeah. it's so loud within yeah. 30 seconds, you know, I'm sure blood is pouring from my ears. <laughs> At 45 seconds, I am physically ill and about to vomit. Really? Yeah. And I shot out my one roll of film and I had to get out of there. I was physically ill. It was so loud. And they didn't wear headphones, earphones, they, they, earplugs. Uh, they, they didn't wear jack shit. Yeah. And, um, and I know that that day ruined a good 20% of my hearing. Yeah, my buddy, my buddy Dean Del Rey, he tracks his hearing loss to an ACDC concert, I think, with the uh, Those About to Rock tour with the blasting of the gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was right next to the speaker, and he lost it. Yeah, well, you know, Motley Crue used to have the, the, the floor monitors in the pit. And, yeah. And, uh, the, right, the, where you're uh, running around in the pit. Oh, yeah. 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 So and on stage, yeah. and, you know, and, and it's still, it's not going to help your hearing. 
Well, where does it start, though? Like, where do you get the... Like, I did some photography when I was a kid, but it sounds like, you know, you were a real nerd for it. I mean, where where did you get interested in both music and photography? Well, uh, music, uh, my life can be divided into two absolute distinct phases. Yeah. Pre-February 1964 and post-February 1964. Right. If you know what I'm talking about. The Beatles. The Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. And literally... How my, old were you? How old was I? I would have been tw- uh, almost twelve, uh-huh. and the, th- that's as I I think I wrote in the book. That was the uh, nuclear bomb that <laughs> yeah. John Lennon delivered directly to my cortex. Yeah, uh, and the day before that, my whole life was what did Mickey Mantle do to hit a home run yesterday? <laughs> the Yankees, yeah. blah blah blah. Right. The day after, I got to have a guitar, Beetle Boots, blah 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 blah. Were you growing up at this I point? grew up in Forest Hills, New York. In Queens. In Queens, that's right. And my, By the World Fairground? Oh, yes. So we, sure. I used to walk to the World's Fair, and, and you used to be able to get in for a quarter if you were with your, your parents. So me and my oh, buddies- You were there for the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. You saw That it was 64, 65, right. yeah. And yeah. it ran for a while? Well, it ran two years, 60, 1964 and 65. And you could just go over there? We could, we would walk. I mean, it wasn't a short walk, but it was, you know, two, three miles. Yeah. And, and then what we, me and my two buddies would stand outside the uh, the uh, cashier uh-huh. and we would wait for a couple to come by and we'd ask them if they could pretend that they were our parents. Sure. And that people would say yes. And, and it, it was, we'd give them a quarter for each of us to get in and they'd pay the 75 cents. And then the second we get on the other side of the turnstile, we'd tear off running away from our, quote, parents. Yeah. And I, was, was I must there? have gone 20 times. What was there to do? Oh, my God. All the pavilions, the yeah. General Motors Futurama. The, yeah. They had the, the the spin art things with the paint. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. There was, it was the, the World's art. Fair. The video telephones, which now you know yeah, I laugh sure. at, but <laughs> but you've never uh, seen it before that. No, I mean no one had ever really seen it before then, and and then the Unisphere became a after the World's Fair was over, the Unisphere became kind of a meeting place for all the teenagers and queens, and it's where you'd go to, to right to, hang to out. Cop pot and drink second alls you oh, know yeah? reds yeah and uh and meet girls and all that so the, stuff. the fairgrounds were open once the fair was gone yeah well it was just... flushing meadow park right um right and and what happened was uh i had gotten my first camera when i was right around the time of the beatles uh from my first of three brothers-in-law sorry carol but <laughs> i just blew it for you um and um so photography was my hobby and uh, somehow my love of music and my love of photography ended up morphing into one super hobby. And there was a concert series uh, at, the, at the New York State Pavilion, uh, which was left over from the World's Fair. And uh, a couple of my buddies uh, had gone and shot some pictures at some concert there from their seats. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I went and shot w- one of the other shows there, and I don't remember which one it was. And we decided that if uh, if we showed th- some prints to someone at the t- local ticket office for this concert series, maybe we could get them for free. Where are you where are you processing at that point? Are you doing your own processing? I'm I'm souping film in a friend of mine's sink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, the negs are a little dirty. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, and. Um, so through a weird 
quirk uh, uh, I mean just a bizarre happenstance yeah the office that we took these prints to try and get free concert tickets turned out to be the promoter's office of the whole concert series <laughs> yeah and um yeah. They started letting us into their shows for free, and that's how I got my start. How old are you at that point? Sixteen and a half. And and what what's your how did your parents feel about this? What did your father do? Well, for a well, my dad my dad was a Broadway stage manager. Oh my and, god! And he was a production stage manager for every big musical in the, the heyday. So you, you know? grew up in the theater. I grew almost. up around the theater. I mean, he was stage manager for The King and I, Camelot, Fiddler on the Roof. Oh my god! My Fair Lady. You saw all those shows? Oh yeah. And, and in fact, the first performance photo that I ever shot, I must have been 14, and it's in the book, is a photo of the understudy for the lead in Fiddler on the Roof. And I had brought my camera. I used to love going was to the Was it Topol's understudy? Or Zero Must No, no, it was, it was um, Herschel Bernardi's understudy. Oh, Herschel Bernardi. Uh, under, did those is, other two guys do it, or am I making well, one, that up? Well, no, one did the movie, I think, and Zero, Zero Mustel, I think, opened opened the show, but, you know, the right. show ran Herschel for, like, Bernardi. 100 years. Yeah, right. right. So, so Herschel was, was the, was the played Tevia, yeah. the lead, and Bette Midler was also in the show, believe it or not. As the daughter? As one of the daughters, yeah. yeah. But uh, Herschel was sick one night, and and this guy Harry Gauz, yeah, was his understudy. And I had my camera with me, and my dad used to stand at the little podium, right on st on stage left, calling the lighting cues. Mm -hmm. Now I'd seen the show so many times that I knew when th there was going to be a big speech and when there was going to be a laugh. So yeah. when when uh, Harry w was kind of near me, yeah and was doing the speech, I knew there was gonna be a big laugh. I waited for the laugh, and I cocked my shoulder, and I shot one frame during that laugh. Because my dad could have gotten fired if if the stagehand saw me shoot. Oh, okay, union that, rules? Union rules. But you're be, a kid, come could, on. Doesn't matter, it's yeah. New York unions, baby. <laughs> and he could have gotten billed for a photo call for, for hundreds or even thousands of dollars. But I snuck the photo, I made a print, my dad loved it, he gave it to the, the actor, who who loved it and and it turned out that Harry had a series of photography books similar to like the World Book Encyclopedia, yeah. and he gave them all to me and I devoured them. And isn't that interesting? From that point on, I, there was I didn't even make a decision to be a photographer. I just was. You did this amazing picture, and then the guys were like this kid's interested, and he gave you the things that changed your life. Absolutely. Because he he saw your creativity, encouraged it, and he's like, "This kid could use these." Absolutely, he just had them because he it was he was a hobbyist. Or, I, I guess who so. Knows? I, I don't even remember, but um, and they were big books, you know. And um, you just like nerded out completely, completely. And and you know the analogy I make is when when you're fifteen, sixteen years old, and you yeah. go to driver's ed, yeah. in school. Yeah. Some kids get behind the wheel of that car. They don't know how to drive, but they instinctively know the relationship between the gas pedal and the clutch yeah. and the, you know, that's how I was with a camera. Yeah. I, the shutter, the, the, the shutter release, the, the, uh, the diaphragm, the film speed, it just made sense to me. But, and unlike driving, you know, you, you operate that machine, you get these amazing results that last forever. <laughs> Tell me about it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, Mark, I but, don't know how it happened, but it, it happened just that organically. Well, the, the interesting thing about the book too is in in the essays, you're you're it, there is a sort of teaching element to it. Like there is a tone in some of them where, if like, if you're going to do this, this these are the rules. Yeah. Well, yes, and I wanted the the the, the way I tried to frame everything in my book, no pun intended, yeah. was that to make it about my job. Yeah. This is the job I have. 
there are very few people in the world that have this kind of job and you think it's so glamorous well sometimes it is but a lot of times it isn't you got another thing coming if you think it's so super glamorous and and these are the potholes in the road so so for a while there you're getting in free and that was the your camera oh, i'm always getting in free. No, i know <laughs> but at the beginning you know that was the ticket that was the, that was right. that was your pay yeah, at the very beginning, you showed the promoter the pictures. Yeah, come shoot the pictures. Right, and come come to our shows. And then uh, every time I was backstage, I would, you know, it was a burgeoning rock scene, and the, there were people who were starting new rock magazines, and I'd get little assignments from them. When was the first time you made money? Um, the first, it's actually in the book. Um, I had photographed, uh, me and my uh, shooting partner at the time had, had photographed Steve Winwood. Yeah who was a big star at that time, yeah. traffic, et cetera, et cetera. And we go down to uh, the One Fifth Avenue Hotel in mm -hmm. Greenwich Village and mm -hmm. shoot these pictures of Steve Winwood. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, 15-minute, 20-minute photo shoot. Yeah. Uh, and uh, after they ran in this little rock magazine, we get a call from D. Anthony's office, yeah. Steve's manager. Yeah. Uh, D really likes the photos and he'd like you to come down to his office tomorrow and bring a stack of prints and you know this is big time to yeah. us right so we print up 12 14 prints and we get on the, you know we used to get on the subway to go to go into Manhattan and you know I, I was still a senior in high school and we get up there and we walk into D's office and D was a legendary figure he was you know, a lot of bling everywhere, yeah. and uh, he was obviously someone not to fuck with, yeah. and and you know, very imposing guy, legendary yeah. guy. And he, we give him the stack of prints, and he and he's got a diamond ring about the size of a watermelon on. Yeah, and uh, and he looks through them and looks through them, and not much of a reaction. And he says, "Boys, I'm buying these." He's not asking us <laughs> if he can; he's notifying us. Yeah. And uh, he pulls out a wad of bills yeah. and peels off three twenties, yeah. and says, uh, "Will this do now? Sixty bucks cash to us in nineteen seventy yeah. was like a trillion dollars." Yeah. And we walked out of there, you know, high as a kite. I yeah. mean, sixty bucks for Princess <laughs> Steve Wu. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the end of that story is two years later. I'm sitting at United Artists Records on Sunset Boulevard, and I see this new compilation called Winwood yeah. that had come out. What do you think's on the cover? <laughs> You know, a $60 photo. And uh, so I learned my lesson about that. But uh, well, you're, it still must have felt good. Oh, it, it felt fantastic. Did you get photo credit at least? I did. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the company we had at the time got photo credit. And it, and it was the first time I'd ever seen anything of mine uh, on any record package. And, and you were like 18 or 19? Uh, yeah. Well, at that point, I would have been 19 or 20 because it was a couple of years after we made the sale yeah maybe 19 and a half it seems like the formative years though of you really be getting your your legs in this were with the you know with zap and the almonds well yeah i mean what happened was i moved to la in 71 i my girlfriend at the time uh was a was in publicity and she worked with uh a lot of big bands, and, and I was just immersed in the business. I knew people from the business in New York. And you mentioned Danny Goldberg. Yeah, Danny I knew from, Danny was a, was a rock writer for Hullabaloo Magazine, which yeah. was the previous incarnation of Circus Magazine. So I knew Danny. What was he like as a younger man? Same as he was as an older guy. He had hair down to here. I mean, he was great. I mean, he's very bright. And yeah. um, 
but and I knew him from uh, from Circus Magazine. So uh, I, I, my partner and I had a retainer deal with Atlantic Records that we negotiated in '72. So we would we'd be sent out to shoot all the the Atlantic uh, artists, uh, be it Led Zeppelin or a guy, whoever was on the the label at the time. I can't even think Manhattan yeah. Transfer, you know, people like that. That's a big. Uh, that's a big gap. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're, those are two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and actually, I and I did my first uh, album cover assignment for Atlantic, which was an Eddie Harris cover, and I don't even like jazz, uh-huh. but it's called Eddie Harris Instant Death. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, when Zeppelin uh, was out in '72 and '73, I, I was sent by Atlantic to do some pictures here and there, and '73 was when I, I finally met Peter, and they kind of. Peter Grant, yeah, and they kind we of talk bro- a lot about Peter Grant. Yeah, well, Peter Grant was uh, you learned uh, some lessons, huh? I learned a lot about life from Peter Grant. Uh, I mean, Peter Grant was the road manager. No, was the manager, the manager, the manager. Richard Cole was the road manager. Oh, okay, but uh, anyway, I started doing some stuff for them at the end of '73, and then uh, then they formed their own label called Swan Song in '74. And Danny, uh, at the we were we were hired to to photograph the uh, launch party at the Bel Air Hotel, uh, and then Danny uh, had said to me, uh, "Yeah, I think we're going out on the road, uh, you know, in the winter." And I said, "Well, if you want anyone to come on the road with you as tour photographer, please consider me." He was in the, he was in publicity. Yeah, then. he was doing their PR. Yeah. And uh, never never dreaming that the call would come a couple of months later. And I remember distinctly the phone rang and it was Danny and he said, uh, you still want to come out on the road with us? Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I was hired right there and then as their tour photographer. And, it, you know, when you're 23. 1972? So, no, so, so, well, 74 I was hired. Yeah. So I was 22 and it will never hurt you having Led Zeppelin on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. But uh, I mean, I, I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was, that was the turning point of my career. I mean, because, you know, it, it's like working for Sinatra and Elvis at the same time. Yeah. I mean, this Led Zeppelin, they're a cloistered bunch. You've all heard the rumors and uh, not all of them are true, but, um, which ones? Well, you, you know, the, everyone talks about you know how crazy yeah. they were, the sex and drugs, and if 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 that's how you define crazy, yeah. I will tell you that an Ario Speedwagon tour is just as crazy <laughs> as a Zeppelin tour. Okay, <laughs> but there was a lot of drama and tension, and uh, and they were a very cloistered bunch. I mean, it's almost like the mafia. Once you're in, you're in, and once you're out, you're out. Well, I think you made a good point in the in in the text of the book in saying that like. Yeah, whatever you hear, whatever you may know, or whatever really went on, these guys were still professionals that showed up for work and did the fucking job of rock star. Oh yeah, like, yeah. You know, as as I had to do. Yeah, I mean, I had to, you know. Look, yeah, you you were I, partaking. I, I was the ringleader some of the time. I yeah. mean, if you read the article about Robin Zander getting arrested, but yeah, uh, but I'm there to do a job. Yeah, and regardless of what happens that way or any other way 
I'm there to do a job, and if I don't do my job, I'm going to get thrown out on my ass. Well, the way you describe cocaine in a couple of those passages, <laughs> I was like, this guy knows. Like, the, oh. the, the excitement in the text. <laughs> There's two descriptions of cocaine where I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy did some blow. The, the rock in Venezuela, and then the pharmaceutical glittering coke on the rug. I'm like, uh, the yeah. Our, There's our, that moment where you're like, oh, what a waste. Oh, what how about waste. the one where Sly Stone was, was smoking crack in my that car? That is the best story. And and, and when we've got to where, you know. But he wasn't, hey, it didn't sound like, that was before crack. He was smoking bass. Oh, it was bass, yeah, sorry. And, uh, you know, after chasing him around for a week, I finally have him in the car. We're supposed to go five minutes up the road, uh, Man Lake uh, in uh, Mandeville Canyon. Yeah. And uh, he says, hey, man, I just, uh, just five minutes around the corner, man. I just got to do a quick air, man. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Was five minutes around the corner. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We, he takes me 22 miles as the crow flies yeah. to La Brea and Jefferson. And we're, uh, on the way on the San Marco freeway, freeway, he pulls out an acetylene torch out of a little box. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm rolling with the punches. And then we get to some weird ex-Marines house, some PTSD guy who- That's where clear, Coke takes who you. Who can clearly yeah. not sit in a room right. without facing a window. Right. And they proceed to bring out the biggest bag of blow I'd ever seen. <laughs> and as I wrote in the book, I was torn between wanting to run as fast as I could out of there and wanting to stay forever. Sure, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, those are the days. You know, but- uh, and you got the shot. You got he got high, and you got the shot. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we got it. Um, it's pretty crazy. And you know, uh, Coke. Uh, I don't recommend cocaine to anybody. I mean, it's it's, yeah, it's I, a I, nasty. You know, I I have this theory that you can be the sweetest little girl growing up in Nebraska. Yeah, do enough coke, and a week later you're gonna be hanging from the ceiling in handcuffs with a mm -hmm. nun's habit on and yeah. whips, and yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, there's something about it, you, you know, and, and it's weird because looking back on it, I've been sober like over 18 years now, and it's like, it, it's all about that first hour. You know, the rest of it is oh, just like... It's not even that. It's, I, I, and it's been longer than that since I've done Blow. I remember that going to the dealer's house was more of a turn on than actually doing it. Uh, scoring it, yeah. Yeah, it, it was, and I, I had that epiphany one night. Uh I remember that there was this girl that I had a real crush on. Her name was Maxie. Yeah. And I'd done everything I could to get her to come over to the house. And finally, one night, she called me up and said she was going to come over to the house. Yeah. And I had been just hoovering, hoovering, yeah. hoovering. And I was convinced I saw a UFO. Okay. I was on the deck of my house. And <laughs> this Cameron is the and I. Downside were, of prolonged right, right, right. cocaine. Oh, use. no. no. Oh, this is way downside. Cameron and I were roommates at the time, and he was down in San Diego, and I was upstairs, and and I'm hoovering, and I'm waiting for Maxie to call, and and I'm I'm convinced there's a UFO. I there was, you could not <laughs> convince me of anything else. Yeah, and I got to the point where I actually, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I called the Naval Observatory in Mount Palomar <laughs> near San Diego. Hi, hi. I'm calling from I'm calling from the Hollywood Hills. My name's Neil. I want to report a UFO. And then the guy on the other end of the line is like, Yeah, okay, okay. What was your name again? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll put it on on the list. Okay. And then, of course, she calls five minutes later. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hi, it's Maxie. 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 
there's the UFO. <laughs> there's the, you know, needless to say, she never came over. I never heard from her again. And did you what, did you find out what the UFO was? It was there. There wasn't a UFO. There was. It might have been a guy a with a lighter, or something. you know, yeah. smoking a, a cigarette on Mulholland. Yeah, who the fuck knows? <laughs> and uh, that's where Coke takes yeah, you, no, baby. So like, when, but you got to do, but you, but see, like, I got a little taste of it. I used to hang out with Kennison in the eighties. You know, when he was at the peak of his career, and that was where I really hit the wall on Coke. And I, and you talk very specifically about the charisma and the personality of some of these guys. Mm -hmm. And to be around them, you know, if you're of an, a, a certain type, uh, is pretty energizing and well, pretty intoxicating. Exciting. Yeah, that's a good word. You know, yeah. it's, it's intoxicating. But, you know, every member of, certainly the bigger bands, every member of every band has his or own personality. Yeah. And... As I say in the book, a rock tour also has its own personality. Yeah, and they're very different things. And the the personality of a rock tour can turn on a dime, given a bad review, a bad audience, right. uh, a bad uh, an interview gone awry, the drummer getting the clap. Yeah, you know, and and that's where the tension comes from on on rock tours and and. You know, girl the, problems. Yeah, I mean, all of that stuff. Uh, photographer, you know, pulling a cable out by mistake. Uh, yeah, because you forget that, like these tours. Sometimes you're with these guys for months. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's a, it, it's like a, a closed community. Oh, very much smaller so. than high school. Very, very much so, and uh, that's why we have things on tours called road wives. You know, you hook up with one of the uh -huh. girls on the tour, and then the second the tour is over, you never see her again. Yeah, um, I just remember that from Almost Famous. It, it, well, yeah. everything in Almost Famous is pretty much true, and uh, that was all about the Almond Tour, right? Uh, Most of it was it, based it, on the Almonds. Was, well, the the character uh, that Billy Crudup played, uh, where where the the, the kid writer. Yeah is trying to get the key yeah. interview from that's that's greg all yeah right yeah the band itself is uh, i think cameron would tell you is an amalgam of a lot of bands band. that had that had two competing uh uh, uh creative uh entities yeah. you know glenn and don right. nick sure. and keith right jimmy and robert right you right know, that kind of thing but uh you know the actual girl who got traded for the case of beer was Let's just say a groupie I used to fraternize with. Oh, yeah? <laughs> the one in real life. Yeah. That's a real story. That's a real story. Sort of sad, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah but but the, the irony of all this is the more I'm around on a rock tour, the more I'm in the room, the more invisible I come, I become. With the camera. Yeah. I mean... The, the more that I'm just blending into the, the the fabric of the tour, the less obvious I am. Yeah, you also made some good points in some of your rules where it's sort of like, you know, you can't get too familiar. You can't, you know, overstep your particular right. station. You don't be the fifth member of the band. Yeah, and don't get fucked up and make a fool out of yourself because, as you said, you're not, you may be friends with them, but you, you're just one step away from getting thrown out. Yeah, you're an employee. Yeah. Okay? And they, you know, I, I'm very good friends with Brian May and Roger Taylor. Yeah. You know, but uh, you do the wrong thing and the, what you get slipped under your door is not the room list for the next day's uh, hotel. It's the one-way ticket home. Yeah, and the <laughs> wrong thing could just be like, just party, just have a few too many drinks, too many lines, say the wrong thing, the one guy. 
one guy uh, yeah you're it, fucking out exactly and and but you but you always go in knowing who that guy is right you never got <laughs> thrown off a tour for being an asshole no did you ever get in trouble yes yeah. not for being an asshole but i got in trouble well i'll tell the story what the hell uh we were in uh with zeppelin we were in uh cleveland yeah at swingos yeah hotel and our next gig was going to be in detroit it was the big show at, at the pontiac silverdome yeah. Uh, we had found out that uh, there was a Little Feet press party that was going to go on in uh, Detroit, and we had a couple of off days. So myself, uh, the P Zeppelin's PR girl, my friend Daniel Marcus, yeah. who was the Atlantic Records guy, and Robert yeah. uh, decided to leave the tour, get on a commercial flight from uh, Cleveland to Detroit, <laughs> yeah. and just go to the Little Feet party, yeah. right? Unfortunately, I did not tell Peter Grant or Richard Cole that we were taking Robert with us. Right. And we essentially kidnapped Robert and went to Detroit and never made it to the party, but that's all another story. And when the band finally showed up the next day, I got a very heated phone call from Richard Cole, the tour manager, saying, you need to go to Peter's room immediately. Yeah. Peter was really pissed off because he didn't know where Robert was. Right. And, and you know, the photographer and the, and yeah. the artist relations guy from the label hijacked yeah. him. So I was spanked. And what he did, and this was on a Saturday, he said, I need six 11 by 14s of John Bonham slipped under his door by 12 noon tomorrow or else. And I knew what or else meant. Yeah. So now I have to find someone to print. You know, Big there's pictures. no labs open. Yeah. And everyone I knew in Detroit had had been spending the whole last 48 hours coked out. Yeah. I managed to find someone who let me into the Cream Magazine darkroom on a <laughs> Sunday morning, you know, yeah. the cab ride alone was yeah. like 100 bucks. And uh, I hadn't mixed chemicals in years. And somehow I made it happen. I went in the darkroom. I made six prints. I got out of there and I made it back to Peter's room by 11.58 a.m. Yeah. By two minutes. Right. And I showed him the envelope. He said, put it under Bonzo's door. And I did it. And that was his way of spanking me. But did he even need the pictures? Of course not. <laughs> no, because he knew it was going to be a pain. The drummer's pictures. He needed, uh, you need 11 by 14 drummer shots. The point was right. yeah. that... that this is what you have. This is the this is your price job. you have to pay, and it's your job. That's your job. Yeah, that'll teach your ass. Yeah, and uh, so you know, th th things would happen. Like I that. love that story about the aerial photograph. Oh, Nebworth, yeah. I mean, like, because like I've seen that photograph, and I wouldn't have known that photograph, and I I wouldn't have known you took that photograph, but I wouldn't have known certainly why. So, Peter Grant, tell that story. Well. Uh, First of all, I love to fly. Yeah. I've taken flying lessons. I never got certified, but I'll go up in anything. I'll go up in two ice cream cones, st sticks with wings and yeah. rubber bands. And uh, we were at Nebworth. What year is this? This is 1979. Yeah. August 1979. Yeah. And one of the guys from uh, from the record label comes over to me and says, uh, do you have any problem going up in a chopper? I said, no. I mean, <laughs> let yeah. me at it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he said, good, uh, Peter wants to take some aerial shots of yeah. the crowd. So I said, no problem. We go right. out to the little helipad <laughs> right. that they have set up and, and there's a chopper coming in that Jimmy's yeah. Yeah. in and it lands and Jimmy comes out Yeah, and then wait for the rotors to stop. And then yeah. I run into the chopper 
and uh, it's just me and the pilot. It was like a jet ranger helicopter, yeah. and I'm I, I'm tied in with not even a seatbelt. It's yeah, maybe like, something as like thicker. a Huey, like a four seater kind of two seater thing. Oh, just like that, like a like there's like I a think it was a four seater, but strap, not, no door, no door, right? Yeah, no door, and I'm held in by some dental floss. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and I've got uh, a, a body and two lenses, I think, and a couple of rolls of film. And uh, and I and but we put the cans on. The pilot says, "So, so, well, what what would you like me to do?" And I said, "Well, just make two passes around, so I could do a couple of rolls of color, a couple of rolls of black and white." And we do that, and he takes a three sixty around the crowd, and he kind of banks this way, and I'm I'm petrified that a lens is going to roll out the door <laughs> and kill somebody. Right. A roll of film, you know, could three thousand feet sure. up, could, right? And. Uh, but I had a blast, you know, I love that. So uh took the photos and uh we landed, forgot about the, you know, I just put them in the batch with everything yeah. else. And about a, a week later, someone from uh, Swan Song calls me up and says, uh, we need you to take uh, the dozen best photos that you have from, from the aerial shots, uh, black and white and color, put the negs in an envelope. Someone will be coming to your door tomorrow Give them, give him the envelope. Don't yeah. ask any questions. Yeah. Next day, very James Bond like, right? Yeah. Next yeah, day, yeah, yeah. Uh, knock on the door. Yeah. Uh, I open the door. The guy's jacket and tie. You know, uh, sir, I'm here for the envelope, and I just hand it to him. No, thank you. No, nothing. He just walks away, and that was the last I ever heard of it for a couple of years. Yeah. And I found out why it was so important to get those photos. Yeah. Peter Grant. Uh, had a feeling that the promoter was going to try and fuck him on the uh, the ticket sales, yeah. Uh, because uh, I think they reported one hundred and ten thousand, but there were obviously a hundred and thirty, hundred forty, yeah. one hundred fifty thousand right. people there. And Peter had access to some software that had just been developed for NASA. By this was revolutionary, uh, revolutionary at the time, by which you could take a photo, blow it up split it into quadrants and the computer the software could figure out plus or minus about 100 people how many were in each quadrant thereby multiply it by four <laughs> and you'd have plus or minus 400 or so the size of the crowd yeah he wanted that in his back pocket in case he had to sue the promoter uh, which he did yeah and he won no shit he won yeah so Wait. that was that that's, was why that's they a, needed that aerial that's shot. That's forward-thinking Peter Grant, and I'm telling you, he was one of the great managers of all time, and uh, I owe him a lot, and yeah. Jimmy and Robert and all of them. But Peter was he had street smarts. He trusted me from the get-go, and I have no fucking idea why. Yeah, he just had a feeling. He also had your number. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, he did. But, uh, you know, I mean, this is Led Zeppelin. You don't, sure, man. You don't, this is the top of the mountain, baby. You don't fuck around with them. And, and yeah, and that, and that really kind of built your resume, right? That, yeah, I exactly. Mean, and the, the, the passport photo I took for Jimmy. I love he, that thing. And that seemed to and, kind of. And you know what? That ended up years later being the cover of Jimmy's photo autobiography book that no came kidding. out about three years ago. Oh, yeah, it's the cover. And there's just 
did, something about well, the, his eyes. And then you it. did, the, but there's a whole series of portraits in there that, I mean, I don't know what the first portrait you did that close, but the fact that it was for, again, you had to turn it over, you know, overnight. You, they needed a passport for oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. he could go to Egypt. So you were shooting it for a very specific reason, yeah, right. but there was something revealing about the portrait that must have compelled you to do more portraiture. Well, I mean, I, I would do some whenever I could, but this was a specific need. They came to me on the plane about one in the morning yeah. saying, uh, Jimmy and Robert are going to uh, Egypt at the end of this leg of the tour and we need a passport photo for uh, Jimmy's visa excuse me that has to go to the Egyptian consulate mm. what time does it have to be there because I'm all about deadlines just right uh, you know tell me what the fucking deadline is well it's got to be there by 3 p.m. tomorrow I'm yeah thinking, oh shit so so I take Jimmy in the back of the plane and I shoot three frames yeah uh, and I know pretty much how tight it has to be. I know what a passport photo is. And I uh, run the film over to the lab, and I get there early. You know, I put in the night drop, and I get there early, and I wait around for the prints, and uh, and Jimmy let me pick the photo out. Um, and uh, we got the prints made, and I brought them over to the band's office, and they sent someone to the Egyptian consulate, and and we got in under the wire, and and... Forty some odd years later, Jimmy picked that photo for the cover of his book, which it was astounding and a huge honor for me, and showed me that even a passport picture can have <laughs> can have that glint in the eye, or you know that window to the soul, whatever you want to call it. Well, you know what also fascinated me about the about the stories was how yeah it was a smaller world then. There there, there were two things that were happening. Clearly, there wasn't as much traffic. <laughs> you got that fucking right. You know, like, you know, yeah. you guys were running around. I got to get this over there in an hour. I got to get this into the mm. city. I got to get this over to the lab. And you're like running around. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that would have taken three hours today. Yeah. Or yeah. four hours, even in New York. And also the idea that there were labs. I mean, yes. that like the, the entire business was was hard copy shit, man. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And like that, that whole world is gone. Pretty much. I mean, there's still a little of it here and there, but... Uh, that's what you did. You had film developed. You had prints made. You had duplicate slides contact made. Contact sheets, contact, contact sheets. Contact sheets. And people look at my contact sheets. And uh, I mean, there are people. Just put a book of contact not, sheets out. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there are people who are not that much younger than we are who have never seen a contact sheet. Oh. Don't get the concept of it. And when you look at my original contact sheets, these are the ones, you know, the dog-eared ones that I've been printing off of and, and looking at for 45 years. Yeah. And I I, I hate editing on a on a screen. I yeah. hate digital. I hate everything about digital photography, but that's a whole other you like issue. The, you like the little eye, find the little things well, you look at. Well, I the, can just... At the contacts with my eyes are, find, what the eye hole? What uh, is, oh, a loop. A loop. A loop. Get the loop, yeah. Yeah, but, but my eyes and my brain is trained to look at an entire proof sheet and then be able to zone in on a certain frame. But I got to tell you, it's got to be on some level. Uh, I, I don't know how, when or how you made the transition, but the the difference between you know running with a bag of ninety five rolls of what Triax, you know, to the lab, mm -hmm. and and just you know having a camera of a self contained computer unit with a filing system has got to be different. More more uh, what anything? Well, I, I'll more, tell you what practical. Uh, it's not to me. It's impractical. I can I can edit ninety five rolls of film on contact sheets in a quarter of the time 
even less. Oh, to go through it on a computer. Then I can go through them on a computer. Because like, I guess it's, with a computer and with what you can do to an image, uh, you know, before you even print it, it, it creates the same. It's like when you write. There was there must have been something like writing with a typewriter where you know you didn't have the option to cut and paste. You didn't do it. Right. Well, it's not even that. It's just the way that uh, on, on a computer, yeah, you have to download the cards. Then the, the the originals have to be put in a folder. And then your selects have to be marked. And then you yeah. do this and that. And it's, it's, fuck, give me a contact sheet and a grease pencil. <laughs> boom, yeah. boom, 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 print these. Yeah. That's it. And you still and, do it that way? Yep. <laughs> well, whenever possible. I mean, I have to shoot digital sometimes. But you can still get all the film. What we usually shoot? What was all the concert stuff? Tri-X with the uh, Tri-X. Uh, usually Tri-X uh, pushed a stop or two. Yeah, which would be eight hundred or sixteen hundred. Uh, high-speed Ektachrome, high-speed yeah. Ektachrome Type B, which is tungsten balanced. Uh, Kodachrome two hundred when they came out with Kodachrome two hundred, and um, that was pretty much it. Uh, and the and, right lenses. Of course, uh, the right lenses and, you know, faster lenses. And and, uh, it's the lenses are not the 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 optics are not much different than what you use now. I mean, a a 135 millimeter lens is still a 135 millimeter lens. Yeah. Um, But this there are so many bells and whistles on these damn cameras now that I mean the instruction book for an for a Nikon F5 or or the F6. Yeah. Uh, you know it's same like with, this thick yeah it's, same it's with re- cars yeah it's like they keep adding things what do you need i mean i have to travel <laughs> with instruction books for yeah. all my digital cameras yeah. we were in rio with queen two years ago and i have an assistant out by the soundboard and all of a sudden she calls me on the cell phone there's something beeping and blinking that i don't know how to turn off and so i gotta like send a guy out with the, with the Spanish version of the, of the of the uh, the instruction book, I mean, give me a fucking break. And I use them on manual override anyway. Yeah. Well, I tell you, uh, it, it's a great book, and you Thank know, you. and I don't usually, you know, I get a lot of books, and I get a lot of photo books, and there's not there's not that many photo books where you know you have them, but how many times you go, you know, look at them? And I read the whole book. You know, right. too, you know, which, and I'm a rock fan. So, so like in the essays really made a difference for each segment. But I liked what you said. What was interesting after all the concert uh, footage and, and mm-hmm. some of the intimate portraits, I really liked the one of uh, Booker T and Steve oh, Cropper. Great, great. Like uh, that was out of nowhere. You got Booker T and Steve yeah, Cropper. For yeah. Some, yeah. And they're really kind of weirdly intimate photographs. Yeah. That right? was, I was 17 when I shot those. <laughs> Oh, some of those are that long yeah. ago, huh? Those are kind of rescued, what I call rescued negatives. Oh, those are the ones from the section where you had those, the, where you didn't have the, enough light, but because right, of computer right, technology. Right, right, right. You, you can scan something and get as much information off the oh, next no, as possible. Oh, no, really? Kid, yeah. and, and there's a bunch of those in there, right? Yeah, and there's a, we could do a whole book of those rescued ones. I think there's a shot of James Taylor in there. Oh, yeah, is, man. That's that's a rescued negative, no too. No kidding. Yeah. Like I, in that period, too, I talked to him in here, and like I, he was submerged in dope. You oh know, yeah oh like, yeah i know yeah and you can feel it in that photo a little yeah am i wrong no no i i agree with you i mean i'm really proud of the fact that you know it's a body of work uh, oh dude yeah and in the way you broke it up is beautiful the performances those pieces you. but i really like what you had to say about studios you, you know oh, uh, yeah the, the, they're kind of a a place that I've never, it's not that I don't feel comfortable in a recording studio, yeah. but I feel like it's a place I'm not supposed to be. 
yeah. that I have because that's where those people feel like anyone should be do in what they do, for, yeah, right. you know. So like a sanctuary. Yeah, and and uh, I, I just I like I'll go in and shoot and I'll yeah. hang back and because that's their that's their dark room. That's yeah. their right where their process happens. Right. And uh, and I'll tell you what I'm I'm thrilled that you dig it because I I'm really proud of the text and wanted to let people in on the the experience of what I do and at the end of the book I want the reader to feel like you've just come off the road with Led Zeppelin for a year and a week with Guns N' Roses and around the world with Bruce and feel exhilarated and exhausted because that's how I feel every day yeah and that's where the title came from yeah the title is and, and I just thought uh, oh god is that a great title exhilarated I on, and exhausted I sat yeah. out for a day and I yeah. called Cameron and I said am I am I out of my mind or is this really genius he said it's fantastic so oh and also like you know you told some of the stories which is great but like you know i don't want to ruin the uh, the kiss and the fake snow story for anybody <laughs> or, or or motley crew on the real glacier for yeah. anybody yeah you know or, or, those... or pearl jam in the plane oh that's good too the pearl jam in the plane. <laughs> and i also like uh, that moment you had with dylan which i think probably lasted it still lingers with bob you. dylan called me a leech is yeah. the name of the piece and <laughs> and that was and he did and well you know that picture of him and joan where he's looking at me yeah, in those yeah. steely oh, yeah, eyes yeah. that's bob dylan yeah well the, but you shot him a few times and he, he eventually seemed like to, he accepted you well right? yeah i mean he, he th look he's been photographed he's probably been photographed more than all four beatles together yeah. i mean so it's it's all you know it's he just goes by rote and uh you know i did the wilbury stuff which i I've like been, that that whole thing where <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the phone call Tom with, and and George. Yeah, the phone call with Tom and then G and George gets on and and, and they that's were all, all I remember. They were all nervous about Bob. Yeah, they're the all shoot. you know. Hey, we'll shoot when Bob's ready, and don't just be careful of Bob. And this, this is George Harrison telling me this. You're a Beatle. You trump Bob Dylan. Okay, so uh, and then Tom walks in the room saying. Okay, I just want to tell you now when Bob's ready and Bob this and okay, I get it, you guys. Yeah, you already had a chip on your shoulder about Bob. Jesus, you know, you know, but the Bob was That would have been so good if he said there's the leech. <laughs> I tell me about it, man. I know I was petrified. <laughs> leech, you're a leech and we'll let, we'll let the the listeners uh read the book and find out the rest of that story. Great book. Thanks for talking, Neil. Thanks so much, Mark. That's it. That's a, That was interesting. That that bird just landed there. I'm gonna play a little guitar and we'll get out of here. I think that's a good tone. It's just built-in vibrato and the uh, some reverb, Stratocaster. Uh, three chords. I'll add a fourth one. That's the way it goes in here. Did I tell you that I'm going to have the garage documented before I dismantle it?
Boomer lives.